0: Listening to the Wicked Library. (laughs) Let's go for a ride. There are many stories here. Like this place. Like many things here, some have become lost all lost things yearn to be found, and all stories long to be told. I've searched through my building, gathering up stories from every floor, from the basement to the ninth story, and every floor in between. Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable, and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you, and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Lifts First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read. There's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights. It's darker than ever now. Start screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs>
2: Today's first story, The Lake Manawaka Meat Lover, was written by Sheldon Burney and is told by Graham Rowett.
1: Kyle was wiping the counters down when Rochelle poked her head into the kitchen and hollered, Kill the ovens, we're closed. All right, Kyle said, as Rochelle ducked back out to the front of house. About time. The night had been a slow one for a Friday. Not surprising, considering it was the last weekend the pizza place on Lake Manawaka was open for the season, but still a drag. Kyle walked down the line, flipping the grill, deep fryer, and warming lights off, each in turn, leaving the oven on. Kyle and Rochelle had been the only ones on after the brief dinner rush of a half-dozen tables and another dozen bills for pickup had ended two hours earlier. He'd made himself a large pizza to take home with him. A Lake Manawaka meat lover, piled high with pepperoni, salami, crumbled Italian sausage, bacon, and ground beef. It was sitting in the walk-in cooler, waiting to go in the oven so it'd be hot and ready in time to lock up and head home. Once inside the trailer he'd rented for the summer, Kyle planned to sit back, put something on the TV, and enjoy his steaming pie in peace. Early next week, he'd be back to the noisy hustle and bustle of the city. So Kyle planned to enjoy his final few quiet evenings in the boonies to their fullest by doing a whole lot of nothing at all. The counters were cleaned, the inserts wrapped. All the items from the deep freezer had been pulled the previous evening for the season's last hurrah before the summer resort town closed up shop for the winter. Kyle took his pizza out of the fridge, opened the oven door, and slid it in. Then he removed his apron and stepped out the back door for a quick hoot jamming a cardboard box in the door to keep it from locking behind him. The restaurant abutted the back 40 of the Lake Manawaka campground, which had already closed for the season earlier that week. A gravel lane separated the kitchen's loading zone from the pine, birch, and bush of the empty campground. Beyond that, the real woods stretched out endlessly to the north. Tangled shadows stretched from the full moon across the open space between the trees, the bear-proof dumpster, and the back of the restaurant, swaying to the rhythm of the wind. The light above the back door had burnt out a week ago. When he'd checked the storeroom for a replacement, Kyle hadn't been able to find one. He'd ordered more, but they hadn't arrived. By the time they did, he would be back in the city, and it wouldn't be his problem anymore. Not until the next summer, anyway if he decided to come back out for yet another season. Kyle wasn't so sure, though, whether he wanted to spend another summer slinging pizza pie for tourists or not. He'd been doing it since he was a teenager, and those days were behind him now. As he dug himself further into his 20s, it was beginning to seem to Kyle as though he ought to start looking for something a little more permanent. Like something that paid enough so he could actually sock some cash away at the end of the month. If he could land something decent in the city... Maybe he'd stick around for once. Then again, slinging pizzas was easy money, and he'd gotten pretty used to the lazy summers in Lake Manawaka. Kyle dug the monkey pipe out of his pocket, twisting the cap to the side as he raised it to his lips. He flicked his bick, brought the flame down to the bowl of green buds, and pulled the sweet smoke deep into his lungs. Full up, he held the smoke in and stared at the bright white orb hanging above the tree line. Far off in the darkness, something howled, startling a cough out of Kyle and ruining the otherwise serene moment. It was that time of year, but Kyle was still startled by the call of the wild animal out in the darkness. Kyle spat into the dirt in disgust, twisted the pipe's cap closed and tucked it into his pocket. Damn coyotes, Kyle muttered, slinking back into the kitchen his heart racing just a little from the start and the injection of THC into his bloodstream. After checking on his pizza, Kyle made his way to the front of house. Garbage ready? You betcha! Rochelle, a stone-cold pro-server who'd been working summers at Lake Manawaka since she was a teenager herself, answered without looking up from her cash-out. Now closer to 30, than 20, and studying office management at the local community college, Rochelle'd been in the game too long to pass up the easy money that came with waiting on tourists in the summer, though she'd swear up and down that this was her last summer as a waitress. Ready and waiting for you. Kyle grabbed the black bag full of dirty paper napkins and soggy paper coasters, soiled tissues and used tampons, and tossed it down the hall towards the door. Then he circled back through the kitchen, tying off the two bags of wet food scraps and dragging them towards the back. He set them down with a sigh. He'd have to take them one by one to the bear-proof dumpster, or risk splitting the bags open on the rough ground. He'd done that before, more than once. Shoveling wet scraps was about the worst way he could imagine ending his otherwise easy-peasy penultimate shift of the season. So two trips through the dark to the dumpster it would be. Hoisting the first bag up over his right shoulder, Kyle shoved the back door open again. He stepped out into the moonlight and felt a wet drip down the back of his leg. "Fuck's sakes, Kyle swore, picking up the paste in a vain bid to limit the volume of garbage juice soaking his work pants. Though he knew the path well, he stumbled along the root-snarled ground. As he caught himself from falling, the jolt sluiced the wet contents of the bag, splashing even more down the back of his leg. Shit, Kyle muttered with a shake of his head. At the end of the path, Kyle reached blindly for the handle that he'd opened countless times over the past couple summers. His fingers pushed the dummy lock, designed to keep pesky bears from rooting through bins in resort towns across North America, and his arm jerked the dumpster lid open. When he tossed the bag into the dark maw, it made a sickening squelch upon landing amongst the rest of the week's trash. Kyle turned and stomped up the path to the back door of the restaurant, where he picked up the kitchen garbage with his right hand before hoisting the lighter front-of-house trash over his left shoulder. He navigated the dark path then. With his left hand, Kyle reached out and opened up the metal bin and dropped a small bag in. As he swung the heavier kitchen garbage bag towards the stinking hole, another howl rang out in the darkness, much closer than the one that startled him only minutes earlier. Kyle fumbled his toss the bag caught on the lip. The plastic tore, spilling wet food scraps and soggy napkins down the side of the dumpster. God damn it, Kyle cursed, heart racing as the dumpster lid slammed shut with a resounding clang. Another howl rang out as Kyle shuffled off to grab a shovel from the shed next to the restaurant's back door, as though in response to the clang echoing among the pines and poplars. For a moment, Kyle wasn't so sure it was a coyote after all. If it was, it was a big bastard, he figured, and getting closer. He remembered his buddy Skeeter, who'd spent way more time in the bush growing up than Kyle, who'd been raised in the city and only spent his summers out in the sticks, ever had, telling him there were wolves and worse in the woods around Lake Manawaka. Should see some of the things me and my uncles come across when we're hunting up north, Skeeter'd say as he packed a fresh bong load. Man, bloody elk ripped ass to tea kettle, antlers hanging up high in birch branches, claw marks carved deep in the trunks of trees, man, all gory and shit. There's shit out there we don't even know about, man. Crazy shit. Bullshit, Kyle thought. Just a coyote. As he was hunting around in the dark shed for a shovel, Kyle remembered that his pizza was still in the oven. Ah, crap, he muttered, abandoning his search and bolting for the kitchen. He arrived just in time, the cheese bubbling, the crust and bacon strips crisped to the verge of burnt. He pulled the pie out with the paddle and slid it into the open waiting box with a plop. As he slammed the oven door and flipped its switch to the off position, Rochelle pushed open the kitchen door. I'm out of here, she called, poking her bleached blonde head in quickly. See you tomorrow, Kyle. See you, Rochelle, Kyle called back as she ducked out headed home to her two-year-old daughter and her beer-bellied boyfriend. Kyle had always had a crush on Rochelle, ever since he started at the pizza place as a 15-year-old dishwasher. But she was a couple years older than he was, which as a teenager can be a deal-breaker, and was more or less out of his league besides. They'd made out once, at a staff party four years ago, when they'd both been single and drunk as hell, but Rochelle had never brought it up, so Kyle hadn't either. Still, it was better than nothing, Providing a fuzzy memory, Kyle returned to again and again, late nights and early mornings when he was alone and needed some quick comfort. Have a good night, eh? As the front door closed and latched behind Rochelle, Kyle sliced the pizza first into cheesy halves, then into quarters and eighths. After folding the lid into place, he flipped the heat lamps back on and carried the dirty pie cutter over to the dish pit. Cursing his luck, he headed back out to deal with the mess he'd made of the garbage— While fishing the shovel out of the black maw of the shed, Kyle was tempted to forget about it and leave the garbage and food scraps where they lay. What difference would it make if a stupid bear or that horny old coyote that kept yowling in the near distance came scrounging around on the last day of the season? Sweet nothing, no doubt. But if some clueless dummy did get hurt, stumbling around after the Manawaka Beach Club bar down the road shut its doors at closing time, his ass would be grass. This time of year, there wasn't anyone else around to pin your screw-ups on. Besides, it would only take a few seconds anyhow. Shovel in hand, Kyle shuffled down the dark path to the trash bin and bent to the task at hand. The metal blade scraped against the gravel at the foot of the bin, shucking into the wet trash. With his right hand, Kyle lifted the shovel's load into the bin, the lid of which he held open with his left. Three, four, five scoops later, Kyle figured the mess was as good as gone. Or good enough, anyhow. He let the lid close quietly, turned his back on the deep, dark woods, and began walking towards the shed. He hadn't taken three steps when he heard the rustling of leaves and the snapping of small branches behind him. Kyle stopped, hair rising along his arms and up his neck. He craned his head stiffly back towards the dumpster and the woods beyond, but all he could see was the shadow of the hulking metal bin in the moonlight. What the hell? The wind whistled through the pines, the bare birch and aspen branches. The only other sound Kyle could make out was the pumping of his own blood through his veins, racing past his inner ear, pulse hammering like a double-kick drum. There's some messed up shit out there, he remembered Skeeter telling him on more than one wasted occasion. Things you never seen, bud. Fucking things you could never imagine. Get it together, Kyle told himself standing there in the darkness before letting out a long-held breath. While he'd never really bought Skeeter's line of bullshit, if the night were dark enough or the wind loud enough, Kyle's mind was known to wander into those dark corners of his imagination. The wood stretched out to the north for miles and miles, broken only by the occasional logging or mining road. Though he was loath to admit it, there was certainly space out there for Skeeter's crude beasts to run amok. You're just tripping. But as he turned back and took his first step towards the restaurant, Kyle heard it again. The heavy, distinctive crunch of leaves and the cold snap of dry wood. Gripping the shovel tight with both hands, Kyle stood staring into the darkness, heart pounding. When nothing emerged, Kyle shook his head in disgust. Quit being a dumbass, he cussed himself, hustling back to the shed and tossing the shovel in. He slammed the door and slapped the padlock closed. Kyle hurried into the kitchen and flipped the heat lamps off. He picked up his warm pizza box, hit the lights, and made his way out the back door again. He was in such a rush that he forgot to sign out before he kicked the piece of cardboard that kept the back door from latching out of the way, slamming the door behind him. Once it was closed and locked behind, Kyle was determined to slide in behind the wheel of his car and get out of there, pronto. Fuck signing out he do it in the morning. Gravel crunched under his grease-splattered sneakers as Kyle hustled across the back lot. Closing in on his Buick LeSabre, he began fumbling in his filthy chef pants for his keys. He set the warm pizza box on the roof of his car and pulled out his keys. As he was working the key blindly into the lock, Kyle looked up, furtively scanning the shadows that surrounded him from all sides. The lock clicked, and Kyle wrenched the heavy door open, Dome light flashing. When he grabbed the pizza from the roof of his car, his eyes caught something moving through the darkness among the trees to his left. Stepping back with a start, the greasy box slid from his hands. As it hit the ground, the box popped open, spilling the Lake Manawaka meat lovers out over the gravel and pine needles at his feet. Ah, come on! Kyle moaned in exasperation, his eyes scanning the darkness hoping to see a lost cat or dumbass dog mosey out of the woods. But nothing emerged. In a quick burst of relief, Kyle realized that it was probably just Skeeter playing a dumb joke. That asshole was always trying to spook him with his talk of wolves and shit in the woods. Seriously, Skeeter had said during the many nights they'd spent sitting stoned in Kyle's trailer or in the front seats of his own car on some dead-end back road after burning one down. You ever heard of the Wendigo? Fucking Indian legend, bud. But my uncles, they swear that shit's for real. She's the beast of beasts, bud. Like pure fucking evil, man, no shit. Very funny, Skeeter, Kyle yelled into the night as he stooped down, helping to salvage some of his pizza. If Skeeter was pulling his leg, then Skeet could find his own way to get high tonight. Kyle had had just about enough of Skeeter's endless line of backwoods bullshit. He took some assurance that once he was in the city, you wouldn't have to hear about wolves or wendigos or whatever the fucks anymore. Not until next summer, at least. Hardy fuckin' har, buddy! Hardy fucking har! But the wailing wind was the only reply Kyle received. Skeeter didn't come stepping out of the darkness. Neither did a lost cat or any dumbass dog. Kyle took a deep breath, his blood thump-thump-thumping past his ears, and shoveled a couple slices of pizza back into the box. When a branch snapped right behind him, Kyle jumped at the crack, spinning around. Damn it, Skeeter! Kyle cursed, ready to confront his buddy with a solid jab to the shoulder or a kick to the nuts. Instead, Kyle found himself staring into the eyes of a beast towering over him, easily the biggest animal, beast or thing he'd ever seen. Whatever it was, Kyle realized with sinking horror, it was no coyote. The slices of pizza that he'd collected slid from his greasy fingers. Oh, shit, he started to say. Then whatever it was, which looked like a coyote, if a coyote were bigger than the biggest wolf he'd ever imagined and stood upright on its hind legs like an enraged and overprotective mama bear, growled at him low and mean. Kyle tried to force himself to take the couple steps backward into the open door of his LeSabre, but his legs wouldn't move. Instead, his bladder let loose, and he began to moan. Hot piss dribbling down his leg to soak the dirt next to his forgotten Lake Manawaka meat lover. In the movies, Kyle thought disjointedly, this would have been where the director cut to black. Bullshit, Kyle had told himself. Fuck sakes, there were worse things in the woods. Kyle understood with a sick wrench of his guts. Skeeter had warned him on more than one occasion but he hadn't listened. It turned out Skeeter and his inbred uncles weren't so full of shit after all. Whatever it was that stood before him, panting hot garbage breath in his face, took a giant step forward. Its monstrous tongue dripped bloody drool between impossibly large yellow fangs. Steaming pizza at his feet, all but forgotten, Kyle knew he would never see the city lights again, that this was it. He knew, too, that there would be no quick fading to black, but instead a red tearing that would seem to last forever in the dark northern night, and a long, lingering scream that would be lost within the wind among the trees.
3: Where do you think you're going? There's more story
0: to come. (laughs) Don't you want us to keep the lights
1: on?
2: (laughs) Telling our next story, it's Addison Peacock.
4: The Bad Things by Celine Grasby. Dad leaned against the hood of our brand new 1987 station wagon. He took the cigarette from under his bushy mustache and flicked it to the ground, stamping on it with his brown leather sole. Mom gave him a hopeful glance, but his eyes were hidden behind his aviators, and he stayed glued to his spot. She sighed as we walked side by side to the picnic table at the edge of the forest, leaving him alone in the parking lot. We had stopped at a fast food joint on the way to the park to pick up burgers and fries for our picnic. Dad ate his in the car while Mom gave him sideways glances. Mom and I sat across from each other on the splintered and weather-worn wooden picnic table. I sat carefully as to avoid the bird poop and clumps of dirt, hoping I wouldn't get any slivers in my butt. Mom pulled out the tinfoil-wrapped burgers and bags of fries, laying them on the grimy table. I immediately set my napkins underneath. Darling, Mom ripped open a packet of ketchup with her teeth. You're too young to worry so much. Mom always said stuff like that, but then she always gave me a reason to worry. I shrugged, biting into my burger, and it tasted the same as the week before and the week before that. I tried to remember the times before all of this, but then I would think of her. A bird flew overhead and landed a few feet away on the grass, patiently waiting for scraps. Why do you think he still keeps it in the car? Mom whispered, and I pretended I didn't hear. I wish your father would join us. Mom turned to find Dad had already lit up another cigarette. It would be nice to spend time as a family. Why won't he just come and sit with us? I didn't want to answer her. Stupid bird. I wanted to run at it, kick it, and punch it so it would just leave us alone. She saw me staring at the bug-infested, filthy creature. He's cute, isn't he? Mom regarded the seagull with crooked tail feathers. I tried to hide my disgust, as nothing could have been further from the truth. "'Let's give him a treat,' she said as she was about to throw a fry, but I grabbed her hand. "'No, don't. Then it will just want more.' She speaks at last. Mom was satisfied. "'How's school going?' "'Fine. Are you getting good grades? Yep. Made any new friends?' It's not like there's anyone new in our class, just the same kids since kindergarten. Oh, right. Mom made a handful of fries. How's your father doing? She turned around again and saw Dad sitting in the car with the radio turned up. The sound of the baseball game carried over to our picnic table. Is he making dinner and keeping up with the laundry? Yep, I said. She usually asked me that. Even though when Mom was home, she never did laundry and rarely made dinner. Dad was always the one to take care of that stuff, especially in the month before it happened. That dumb bird is getting closer. It should be scared of us, but it's not. I should give it something to be frightened of. I wish he would come and sit with us. Mom had her back to me again. Why won't he just come and sit with us? There was a pebble on the far end of the beach that looked reasonably clean. I picked it up and held it between my fingers. He's acting so weird. Don't you think he's acting weird? What do you mean weird? I threw the stone at the bird and it flew back a ways. Has he said anything about his job? Mom couldn't tear her eyes away. Are they making him work long hours? No. I shouldn't say it, but and maybe if I did, she would finally turn around and stop staring at him like a lost kitten. Mrs. Malone has been spending a lot of time at our house. Oh. Mom whipped her head around. The bird flew to the other side of the picnic table, close to the edge of the forest. How often does she come over? Mom asked. Every night for dinner for the past two weeks, I said as I found another stone. Every night... Does she cook or does he? Does she bring her son? I tossed the stone and it landed behind the bird, next to a gray, crusty set of toes. I almost choked. My eyes drifted up to a grossly fat belly that hung over two scabby, emaciated legs. It had tiny shoulders and bony arms that hung limply at its side. Its hands were huge, with long, thin fingers and rotten fingernails. My stomach churned, and my head was faint. I was either going to pass out or throw up. Mom put her head in her hands. That's why he wouldn't even look at me on the drive over. I'm such a fool to think that he would wait for me. It's not like I know when they're going to let me out. The thing had an oversized mouth with razor-sharp teeth and slits for eyes. It smashed together its bloody teeth over its black tongue as it emerged from the shadows of the forest. I wondered how long it had been standing there, and why I hadn't noticed it until now. The bird seemed completely unaware that a tall, disgusting being was slowly approaching from behind. Do you like spending time with her? Mom asked. I mean, is she nice to you? Mom? I stood up. I bet you like having another kid around. She put her hand over her mouth. Mom. I pointed to the repulsive beast. Mom, look. What is it? Mom lifted her head. Mom, come over here, right now. You can see it? Mom's eyes were wide, and she grinned from ear to ear. Mom, get away from there. It's coming for us. I backed away from the table as the creature inched forward. Get up! I watched the creature stalk the bird hovering over it with drool dripping down its face. You don't understand. Mom wiped her eyes. I didn't know anyone else could see them. In a split second, the thing grabbed the bird by its neck and shoved the entire body and wings into its mouth in one quick movement. The bird completely disappeared except for a few feathers, which fluttered in the breeze. I saw the creature's belly become more engorged as it swallowed the bird whole. All the blood drained from my head and I fell back onto the grass. Darling. Mom ran around the table and cradled my head. They won't hurt you. You're much too big and strong for them now. What is that thing? I felt weak. I don't know what they are. All I really understand is that they need to feed on living things, and so they prey on the small, the frail, and the dying. Mom and I watched the creature shuffle back into the forest. I tried to convince myself that they were only in my mind. That's what the medication and therapy are for. I stared up at my mother, as if seeing her for the first time. I had been so wrong about her. We were all so wrong. I'll tell the doctors I can see these things too, then you can get out of here! I pushed myself up to sitting. Listen to me. You will never tell anyone that you can see them. Never. Promise me. But, Mom, I can help you. All you will do is end up where I am, and that's the last place you want to be. Promise me you will never tell anyone about this." I stared at the thing as it reached its long, gangly fingers up into a bird's nest on a low-hanging branch. It pulled out a few chirping baby birds and shoved them into its wide, gaping mouth. I leaned over and threw up my lunch. Is that what happened to Hope? I asked, and Mom turned pale. She let out long, deep sobs that brought all of the pain I had been stuffing down out into the open. I put my arms around her, and we both cried together. It was the first time I knew Hope was gone for good. Mom had been living with this trying to tell us, but no one believed her. Everyone thought she was nuts, especially Dad. I knew he blamed her for Hope's disappearance, and the police had no leads, just another missing child. It was a mystery to everyone, but now I understood. Suddenly, Dad was standing over us, casting a long, dark shadow, shielding us from the sun. What the hell is going on here? he bellowed. He saw the pile of vomit next to me and reached down to help me up. Are you okay? I don't feel good, I said. I think I have food poisoning. Dad put his hand on my forehead and then stared at Mom. He furrowed his brow and shook his head. Mom stood up and brushed off her clothes. We should leave. Dad didn't argue. He helped me into the car and let me lay down next to the empty car seat. Mom sat on the passenger side next to Dad on the short drive back to the hospital. I wanted to tell Dad he was wrong, that it wasn't Mom's fault what happened. But he wouldn't believe me. No one ever would. Dad turned up the baseball game, and Mom stared out the window, hiding her face. When we pulled up to the hospital front entrance, Dad put the car in park and stared straight ahead, while Mom opened the door, hesitating a moment before getting out. She leaned over the back of the seat and smiled at me. "'I love you, Mom,' I said, and Dad turned his head slightly. "'I love you too, darling,' Mom stood up and then popped her head back in. "'Your father likes to leave the doors unlocked,' she took a deep breath. "'Remember to keep them locked. It keeps the bad things out.' "'What are you talking about?' Dad raised his eyebrows. "'I will, Mom.' I said always she got out of the car and I sat myself up to look out the window I watched a nurse meet her at the steps and walk her through the front doors we pulled away from the hospital and dad cleared his throat I hope she wasn't filling your head with nonsense dad said from the front seat I stared out the window as we drove through a few neighborhoods on the way back to our house I saw hundreds of bad things. They were hanging around houses, peeking into windows, stalking squirrels and people walking their pets. Dogs barked at them and they tripped over each other, scattering from the noise. A woman with a stroller ran by and the ghosts stared at the stroller with hungry eyes. They tried to open front doors and sometimes they got in. Other times they weren't as lucky and lurked around front and side yards. A window had opened in my mind, and now I couldn't stop seeing them. They were everywhere. There was no escaping them and no hiding from them. All I could do was keep our doors locked, and I would be sure to do that every day for the rest of my life.
3: Where do you think you're going? There's more stories
0: here at the Wicked Library. Stick around or we'll turn the
1: lights off for good.
2: (laughs) Closing out the show today, we bring you Digging
3: by Eamon O'Neill, told by David Alt. The pressure of the trenches folds some men as if they are paper. Of course, my mentor can't help but stress that the Irish are born weak of mind, known for their fondness of whiskey and stout. I don't know, I try. Mick doesn't seem the kind to lose his head. He shrugs, lights up some tobacco, and inhales. There has never been a war more zealous than this. He stubs the cigarette out after two puffs and flicks it near his patient's bed and for many it is not merely the body that is destroyed. He's given Mick something to help him sleep, but his eyes won't close. Instead, he slouches against the mud bank, a line of spittle hanging from his freckled chin. The Irishman's lips mouth words without sound. Check on his trench foot, the medic yawns. I'm off to spend a penny. Bleak, dry air spans above us. It hasn't rained for weeks and the soil is brittle, a welcome reprieve from waterlogged lines. I loosen Mick's boots and remove his socks, stomach looping with the unlaced stench. Breathing through cracked fingers, I oil a rag to wipe the necrosis. Gangrene has not set in, but the skin is bloated in sores and blisters, speckles of erythema or cyanosis. Another downpour will most likely see them amputated. I can't tell if it's the officers shouting orders or the trembling ground that startles me first, but after the impact men scramble the jagged communication trenches like ants distressed. Whispering grains float towards the dirt, and a scent cleaves the air, similar to a chalking rust. Back in Guernsey I would not have been able to identify the musk, but in the Somme I recognise it without a laboured thought. The latrine has been bombed with our garrison's doctor doing his business inside. Misting in the air are the coppers of his blood and piss. I trace the simple maze to the bomb site. As the chief medic's trainee, I am unspokenly tasked with the care of our unit until a proper replacement can be resourced. For his own sake, I pray, he has trained me well. Private Michael Kavanagh is now asleep chest rising with a deception that could mistake him for one of the departed, I whisper a second prayer for his recovery. Dusk settles and the infantrymen stand to attention at the furthest reach of our trench. Draping darkness and dwindling light are the most dangerous frames of day, the times most likely to see falling shells. Our men watch and listen, waiting on something, hoping on nothing. The stars emerge silently, glimmering above the sliced earth. Beneath them I find myself wrist-deep in a young private's stomach, his lungs drowning in blood. Night settles fully, and through some mercy neither breach attacks. The private dies, his blood congeals on my fists, and soldiers cubby into muddy beds. Those that can't sleep drink tea rations and talk softly. Others sit in quiet contemplation. A harmony of snoring is offset by filthy jokes and wheezing laughter. The following day a small reserve treads the lines backwards, settling ladders against old parapets, hauling the dead onto what was once an active battleground. Forgotten rolls of barbed wire encase weary timber crosses. Most have been blown down, scattered away from the men they stood century above. Our group wrap cloths around nose and mouth, but the effort does little to suppress the smell of decay permeating the air. Several bodies require burial, three are missing arms or legs. For two, only a severed limb remains. Boots or helmets are buried to commemorate those that cannot be accounted for. Nothing is left of my predecessor below the ribs. His final resting place is shallow, dimensions relative to what must be submerged. We are far enough from the front that there is no fear of a fusillade. That said, I'm sure the enemy could articulate an attack if the notion took them. It's easy to take their humanity for granted, but like us they lament their dead and must understand the decorum of burial. They are people, after all. Mick's wide-eyed gibberish flashes to mind, barely coherent and speaking of things that couldn't possibly be human, monsters emerging from the soil. Any change in Michael Carvener? An Irish private asks, as if privy to my thoughts. I imagine he should wake soon. With any luck, his mind will have settled. You Irish are lucky in all, ain't you? A Tommy calls out. Cigarette hanging from his corner mouth Shovel piercing the soil There's no one lucky these days, I don't think The younger man says, wiping sweat from his face He scratches an eyebrow The tendons in his forearm shifting like gears A few of the lads were saying that Mick said he saw some kind of Jesus, I don't know what Now do Flanagan says in Gaelic A few teeth missing Bright red hair and lazy green eyes Skinny as a scarecrow Poster boy for the Irish. They existed back in the times of the Fianna. Demons that came up from the ground. And he makes a gesture to the opposing trench not three miles away. I think we've had enough of them without poor Mick's nerves dreaming up more from back home. Haven't heard anyone talk about them since my grandfather, God rest. Flanagan blesses himself. Smirks. Funny, isn't it? There's real flesh and blood bastards looking to kill us and Mick's going dim over folklore. He puts his shovel down and sneers towards me. Funnier still is us here now. Irishman fighting alongside Englishman. Making sure no one takes their land. It's hard to tell if he's taking the piss or looking to start trouble. Flanagan is always perching on gullible shoulders, seeing if he can talk them into a mischief or two. Sure, when this is all over, we're going to go back to knocking the shite out of each other anyway, aren't we lads? He turns to the Irishman nearby, grinning the Paddies rebelled against the British last Easter. To say it was unsuccessful would understate the affair. From what I understand, it was a dismal effort, yielding little more than fresh martyrs. I hadn't taken the group's nationality into account until that moment. Seven men, five of them Irish. It wasn't uncommon to find bruised Irishmen or black-eyed Englishmen when word of their rebellion travelled. It still isn't. "'Give over!' An older Paddy shouts, Brown didn't have nothing to do with what happened in Dublin. I'm just saying. Well, don't say. The fucking smell of this place would turn a hound blind. Pick up your spade and hurry on putting those craters in the ground. The rest of the ceremony is wordless. When the dead have been laid to rest, we make our way back through the traverses. Rations of bully beef and turnip bread are given out. Flanagan offers to take Mick his share. My appetite has dwindled and I decide to finish my rounds before attempting to eat anything. Old wounds addressed as freshly as possible, infections treated, bones set. Flues and colds are ever present, parasitically stalking the trenches. Every soldier knows it isn't guns or mortars taking the majority of life out here. It is the weather. Mick is sitting upright when I return deep-set lines bracket his lips, puffed arcs under cobalt eyes. My father used to say that the eyes were a porthole to the currents inside a man. Mick's pupils are small as pinpricks. James, a quiver in his voice. I had a mad dream. I was a blackbird, maybe a crow or rook, it's hard to tell the difference between them. A blackbird is smaller, I think, and I, I felt very small, so I did. That tin of beef that Flanagan brought should be lying around. I was able to fly very high, James. I started making my way back home, flapping my wings as hard as I could, following the land towards the shore. There should be crumbs from the turnip bread on Mick's dry lips. The ground was dug up all the way back to the coast and the sand was the same. He looks at me, gaunt. Even the sea, James, he whispers. Even the sea had trenches in it. I look into his eyes, try to find something of the man I know. How do you feel? Hungry. Did Flanagan bring you the rations? I don't feel so bad anymore, he says. He rubs my knuckle with his thumb. The rations, Mick, did Flanagan bring them to you? I don't feel so bad about yourself and myself. I run a hand through his strawberry hair. He sweeps my neck with his arms, pulling himself close. For a moment, the tension inside eases, the wholeness of my body exhaling, followed by another sensation, like drawing fresh breath. Some noise startles us both into a sudden retreat. Mick's mind is at least sharp enough to remember the order of things. He looks at me and smiles sutures my fingers in his. He needs to eat something. Flanagan is leaning against a parapet, laughing loudly as a fellow private chronicles his adventures with London city prostitutes. Flanagan! It comes out more aggressive than I'd intended. The mild tint of redness in his cheeks gives him away. The subtle unsureness in his eyes. What? What? The ire in his voice matches my own. Where are Michael Kavanagh's rations? A single drop of rain grazes the tip of my nose. Sure, I don't know. You said you were bringing them to him. Flanagan adopts the same self-impressed grin from earlier. Why do you care, Brown? You're Puff. The sky grumbles, begins spluttering water, Memories of days submerged to the knee, feet rotting and stinking in these shallow canals. Men groan and curse, rush to find any kind of shelter. Flanagan tries to scramble alongside them. Without thinking, I slide an uppercut flush into his chest. He falls onto his ass, gasping. The troops stop running from the elements and turn to watch. Drenched fatigues, an acceptable price. You'd let a fellow countryman go hungry, would you, Flanagan? Also you could stuff your own face with that tasteless shit. Flanagan sits in the moistening dirt, rain pelting his shoulders, constipated moans reverberating through him. I turn and walk through the throng of soldiers. They plant their backs against the trench to allow me passage, audibly tutting that the show has wrapped up. The downpour smashes the dirt changing earth to mud so loud that I don't hear Flanagan closing the distance behind me. I turn as he grabs my waist, leveraging his mass against mine. I'm not sure how many punches he gets in before I manage to turn him. Any pain he inflicts is lost in the adrenaline. My fists become loose, maybe too much so. Flanagan has lied, so I punish him. Because I've uncovered the truth, because that truth cannot be tolerated. For a second, under the blood and slush, his face looks uncannily similar to my own. You are a puff, aren't you? He whispers, mouth in a half-smile. An artillery strike has been planned for the twilight stand-to. All medical personnel have been ordered to stay close to the front line. It has not stopped raining since my fisticuff with Flanagan, and night is settling around us. The water, the darkness, the war, each one compounding a misery. Positions are taken, our man in the sap peers through a periscope rifle. He reports no sign of movement. A signal is given and the first mortar is launched. It cuts the sky quietly. The unit braces, muscles poised as a shell explodes past the enemy line. Our men shout, armaments are rushed forwards, the mortar cannon is replenished. Another shell bayonets the air, explodes. The infantrymen load two more and fire them off. Teeth dig into lips, bowels groan, breath hastens. The breach tremors in anticipation of return fire. But nothing is returned. A quiet order commands a reprieve, guns are lowered, stock is taken. The unit listens and watches. Time grinds against the darkness until our man in the sap shouts that he sees something moving but can't make it out. A flare is launched and a siphoned note rings dull. The sky is scorched in shimmering white. It's then that we see them rushing towards us, those at the lead barely twenty yards away. Rifles are leveled towards them, knives brooding for impact. Shots ring out, striking those at the fore, but something is wrong. The mobilization isn't right, there is no apparent tactic. No sense to what our enemy is doing. Before the airborne glare has expired, I realize that something stirs me. Many of the oncoming troops do not have their weapons drawn. Some don't appear to be carrying them at all. The first of the opposing unit are impaled against a torrent of pikes, Waves crash against them, scrambling and screaming words I can't make out. As the men multiply, we lose footing to the sludge. A Bulgarian soldier transcends the breach, escaping into our flooding trench. He does not attack. He races through our line and never looks backwards. This isn't an attack. This is a retreat. Another flare is ordered and the flat earth of no man's land is lit under crackling phosphorescence. We all must see it there, clawing through the mud, grasping and chewing with an impossible moor. Not a single man moves as troops continue to break our boundary. Dumbfounded and disbelieving, we stare. The first of our men to wake from this momentary stupor turns tail, running alongside the enemy, sprinting through trenches that have taken months and years to dig. The thing pushes itself up from the earth, grabbing a soldier as he runs. Darkness rushes around us as the phosphorescence fizzles out. Without an order, another is launched. When the sky is once again lit, the thing is holding a single leg in gargantuan fingers. Its jaw ruminating like a cow's, bones splintering with every chew. Its figure wavers as if covered in smoking tendrils. I can't tell if this abomination is made of shadows, densely matted hair, or something else entirely. It continues to pull itself up from the ground. When it stands fully upright, the moon is eclipsed. Men are plucked around me as I run. I hear Russian and Italian cries, a German wail, a prayer in Gaelic. The beast seems indifferent to which side of the trench a man fights for. Without meaning to, I find myself standing at the entrance of the sick bay. Mick is sitting where I left him, a tin of bully beef in his hand. A tin he must have had all along. He looks at me and I see less in his eyes than ever before. He smears the cheap meat against his lips and whispers, I haven't been to the confession box in years. A yelp flies skyward and without looking I know it is Flanagan. He is thrown before us, his ribcage a collection of broken spines that pierce dripping entrails. Homory, he wheezes an arm outstretched towards the giant. The thing cranes its neck towards us. It haunches over as the phosphorescence disappears. It doesn't matter who we are, what we have chosen, or what we are unable to change. In the eyes of the Colossus, we are all the same.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes pages. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for any of these creatures to find you. <laughs>